Reef Therapy by Reef Builders is brought to you by ICP Analysis. What's in your water? Hey, Reef Therapy folks. So I'm going to nip this one in the bud. Um, the podcast you're about to listen to is about coral colors. And I just realized that um, I was saying chromatoprotein when I actually meant chromoproteins. Um, I guess the first one sounded a lot better to me in my brain or something. Um, you ever have one of those days where you, after the fact, realize you've been using a word completely wrong? Uh, <laughs> I guess that's one of those days for me. So uh, apologies for the confusion there. Um, and if you're out there listening and then Googling chromatoproteins and not getting what you were anticipating, uh, you can blame me for that. So what I meant was chromoproteins and um, yeah, that, that should help your Google results a lot more if you were to try to read up on that. Um, again, sorry about that. Uh, I guess you could make it a drinking game if you wanted to, if you're you know over 21 and you like to have a beer while we listen is uh, maybe just have a sip every time I misuse that word um, or just have a laugh at my expense. That's fine too. See y'all. What's going on my fellow reef therapists, Mark Vanderwall, how you been buddy? I'm good, man. I'm here. I yeah, have beer. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, me too. I'm uh, enjoying an IPA from the microbrewery next door. It definitely goes very well with um, just kind of helping to open up in these reef therapy sessions and talking about, you know, exactly what we want. And today's topic is going to be all about coral coloration. In my career of being an aquarium figure, I don't think I've ever gotten this question more than any other is how do I make my corals more colorful? And uh, before we jump into that, what's happening with your tanks? And then I'll tell you what's happening with my tanks. So the good is I feel like we're on autopilot and corals are growing well in both tanks, Amen. which I like. Uh, especially uh, that's surprising out of the newest tank, which is all these, you know, iffy LPSs, but they're all just knock on wood jiving you know they're just they're happy they're they're always open you know why because you're not overdoing it yeah you put I, them honestly in the corner, i've been they have so the basics, busy yeah I, that's, and they can just coast it because i'm asking them to coast right now because i'm so busy uh with some work stuff and some you know there's family activities school year's almost over for the kids sports um, but yeah, it's like, they're like, oh, thank God, this, this guy's not meddling, you know, <laughs> I almost feel like there's a sigh of relief coming from my corals. Um, my one downer is I got cocky and added a while back some quarantined, healthy, rockin' dispar antheus, and they are just whittling away. Like I've already lost oh, one. Oh no, that's, is that, that's the one from your top tank upstairs? Yeah. Yeah, I've been feeding. Oh, man, they looked really good when I saw them. They were eating pellets yeah. and everything. At first, I thought it was bullying because one of them got real emaciated. And I just, I've been feeding and I've been feeding. And they're eating. I mean, it's not like they're not eating. Uh, and then that one passed. And then now there's another one that's got, you know, just the heads. Oh, like mm. the body behind the head is thinner than the head itself where it's just this emaciated looking. I feel so bad, man. I just, it. it it hurts to watch. I love Antheus. 
and I love all the hummingbird style fish like that. Yeah. But having kept them through the years, you know that there's just, unless it's a sunburst antheus or, or, you know, some of the larger showy antheus. Yeah. Liar tails are pretty easy, right? I mean, even if you do everything right, you're not going to have that fish in five, five years. Yeah. You know, unless it's a bigger species of antheus. And so like, I feel that way about fish and corals and certain inverts. If like, I don't see it in my reef or I can't picture it in my reef tanks in five years. I'm like, well, that just seems like I'm borrowing the fish and antheus fall firmly into that category. I'm not saying you can't, but I know the guys who have really like focused on having antheus groups, they usually had some kind of um, automatic, uh, you know, small food dispenser. Matt Wandell comes to mind with his um, like daily baby brine shrimp hatching system to just all always have, you know, this small particulate meaty food, live food in the tank at all times. I'm like, for a public aquarium, all right, I can, you know, I can kind of get it. But for like an everyday aquarium, I mean, that just seems like we're going to be fueling a lot of aptasia growth and algae. And uh, so, yeah, don't feel too bad. Don't feel too bad no, about the yeah, I just, I wanted to try a smaller, more dainty antheus because I don't, I got tired of liar tails. Uh, I considered Bimax, but they get pretty big. You know, they're like Oscars. When mm-hmm. they get, um, so they're, I thought. They're very sizable. Yeah. So I thought Dispars, that, that would be a fun one to try. And, I, you know, I'm working from home most of the time so I can feed them a lot. Mm-hmm. But it still wasn't enough. And I'm trying different fatty foods. And anyway, so um, we'll see what happens. There's. You know, one of them is still looking great. It's almost like only one of them gets emaciated at a time. So maybe there is a bit of bullying happening because if it was truly not enough food, maybe they'd all emaciate at the same time. But, you know, there's always one that's fat and happy. Yeah. Um, Or sorry, there's one left that's fat and happy. Um, And then before that other one passed, I had two that were fat and happy, you know, so so maybe it is bullying and I'm just missing it. But I mean, other than that, things are good. Um, I did some big water changes on the water box to get that bacterial film that I was talking about from whatever was causing it. I suspected the alpha reef, but who knows? Mm -hmm. Um, And I haven't seen it come back as strong. So I don't know. We'll see. I'll Um, tell you one thing, man. There's something super rewarding about doing a good water change even when your tank doesn't need it, like for example, my two peninsulas, I dose, I dose a lot. I, I know I need calcium reactors for those, but I dose a ton. And even when the corals are all looking really good and it's been about six weeks, I'm like, all right, let's do a good 25, 30% water change just to help reduce that chlorinity and the rise and excess sodium and chloride ions. Mm-hmm. And um, man, it's just, it's just, it's a very small perk up. Uh, but I know that if I don't do it for a long time, then, you know, the ionic imbalance will definitely get uh, stronger over time. So I just, man, I cannot get on board with uh, this school of thought of tr- even even aiming to not do water change. Like, how are you going to remove detritus? Are you just going to leave it there? <laughs> how are you going to yeah. remove, you know, just little bits of algae and, and sponge and stuff that's growing in your tank? But uh, But yeah, doing a good water change always feels good. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I did um, the other one, the upstairs one, I did one of the push button water uh, exchanges, as you would call it. Um, but, it, you know, it does feel good to just uh, swap out some some bad old water with new water, you know, whatever that may mm-hmm. fix or dilute or replenish. Um, it always, yeah, there, you, you, you get that sparkle back, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I'd say the only other, I guess, interesting thing thing is 
uh, I just, I'm, I'm moving a lot of corals out of my <laughs> coral quarantine. I'm finally getting off my butt and mounting those corals where they need to go. And, um, and then I'm, you know, I'm trying to spin that tank and the, um, uh, fish quarantine down for a little bit, just for the summer, because I doubt they're supposed be, to be, they're supposed yeah. to be temporary by design. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, that's where I'm sort of at. It's like, I, you almost want to reset it, right? It's, it's become a little ecosystem, but, um, it's just another tank you're taking care of at that point, which is frustrating. So, yeah. you know, we're getting into vacation season and all that. And, Last thing you need is like the thing that did you in was like the extra tank you didn't plan to run anyway, right? Like when you're out of yeah. town, like that's the one that uh, something goes wrong with. So anyway, so that's where I'm at. How about you? I, I feel like I feel like there's never been a better time to at least inform our new and existing listeners to go back and listen to our session on avoiding burnout. Um, yeah. That was the one that we did just a little bit ago. Because burnout is not just what's going on with you and your tank. It's also what's going on in your life. And everybody right now is about to be looking at vacations. And, you know, when you have a lot of time to do stuff in the winter or lockdowns or whatever, um, the amount of time you put into your tank doesn't seem like a lot. And even if you reduce how much you do to your tank in the summertime, you might still kind of encroach on your, your, you know, your vacation, summer, going out and being away from the house time. So now's a good time to, you know, listen to last week's session on avoiding burnout and also a previous session on underdoing it or the harm of overdoing it. I feel like that is just beyond the best advice that we could give anyone about, <laughs> about any hobby, but especially reef keeping. Um, but for my part, man, um, we're going to dive this into this in coral coloration since I started um, really maintain a, maintaining a phosphate level so it didn't bottom out. Man, my coral colors and growth have just – I haven't seen my corals this clean and just robust since the tanks were set up and there wasn't really much to suck out those nutrients. And um, so – Again, on the burnout front or overdoing it, I look at my tanks and they're looking so good that I'm just doing a minimal and I'm spending that extra time there, you know, aquarium energy that I would have on my freshwater tanks. So I got um, three pairs of Tina Cara Candidi, a really, really small, like micro pisto. I got those yesterday. Um, some funky tetras. Later this week, I'm going to pick up some Sinepa pencil fish. And um, I don't know. It's just kind of a fun time to play with the freshwater tanks in the summertime. And then I'll let those coast um, in the fall when I can get a little bit more into the reef tanks. But uh, this week, you know, I put out a really fun video of fragging uh, the Immortal Tort. Dude, I could make 10 times as many frags as I made. I made 20 <laughs> frags, I think. But yeah, if I harvested every branchlet on my three, five, seven different like large Immortal Tort colonies, I'd have like 200 good one-inch frags of it. Um, but my challenge now is like, oh my God, how, what am I going to do with all these frags? <laughs> you know, it's just natural to have frags and make frags of the corals that you love the most. You know, to spread them out, but I already have one, two, three, like five to six large colonies of immortal tort. So it feels weird making frags just for the sake of it. I just, I just like sharing it. Um, so that's going on. Um, but man, I am piling up a ton of great new products to review. And it's almost like um, a sampler of new products from around the world. You know, I got that automatic CO2 regulator, the smart regulator from Taiwan. I have this modular rock, uh, Cora, Cora rock from Sweden. 
I have the uh, Abyss AFC cannon from 150 from Germany. Um, my Ukrainian skimmers arrived. They came in two boxes, like almost two weeks apart. And so yesterday I was finally able to piece them all together. Um, and they're just so unique and novel. And I cannot wait to share those with people. Um, see Flipper just put out some limited edition, uh, like a uh, new version of their yeah, magnet scraper that. called the edge. Um, really cool. I was actually quite surprised at how strong they are. When I did the uh, article on them, they hadn't updated the specs fully. And so the largest one went from being suitable for like three quarter inch glass up to one inch glass. And, uh, just like, man, I, I know like, it's not one of those things that, it makes your tank look better for moment to moment. But when you have a really good algae scraper, um, magnetic algae scraper that you can clean your glass with well, that's not going to fall off. It's not going to be too strong. It's yeah. not, not going to take a ton of passes to clean off the, you know, the tough stuff. Um, and just make quick and not, you know, like you, you remember the old magnets that were just iron. They would just always fall if you went a little too fast and they weren't strong and they didn't have an edge and just being able to click, keep, we, we, we work so hard on these tanks and not being able to see the corals because there's a haze in the glass. It's just one of those things I don't live with. I just, I can't. Like, you got to clean that glass. I got to see the tank. You know, no, it's not militant, but a good full wipe down twice a week. Um, a couple tanks I might do an extra time in between. I just feel like that's really important. And having the, the right um, magnetic algae scraper goes a real long way to be able to enjoy your, your tank. Especially... <laughs> With all these super high clarity tanks we have, like what's the point of having high clarity glass if you have algae growing on the glass? You might as well get high iron glass like you did that is going to be stronger, more scratch resistant and cheaper, you know? So um, we got that and, and a few other toys uh, on a review bench, my second review bench because I got too many too many toys to, to start testing out. Um, so yeah, things are looking good here at the studio. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the whole glass thing because when I clean my upstairs tank with regular iron glass, I just, I go crazy. You know, I just, I'm in a rush. I get it done. I don't sit there and analyze if I picked up a little snail shell or something, you know. And then the one in the basement, the water box with the the low iron glass, I'm like, oh, is, is the magnet clean? You know, is there anything in between? Is it clean? Is it clean, yeah. And just that extra... Worry, just uh, it's not not my cup of tea. You know, I'm a guy like it's like the if you make the skimmer cup hard to remove, it's gonna annoy me every time I clean it, and it's mm -hmm. not worth. It's not my cup of tea, man. I don't. I, I like things easy. Um, yeah. But um, but I agree with you. I um, it's funny too. You know, like I have that little nano pico whatever on the countertop and i hadn't cleaned the glass on that guy in a long long time and it was looking kind of nappy but it's funny how five minutes of just cleaning the glass it just was like oh this is a really nice little mm -hmm. tank oh yeah you know whereas yeah before i started i was like ah, you know what i should just dump all this crap in one of my tanks and have one less tank to care about you know it's like that's how my brain is but then once i clean it i'm like oh no no i want to keep it i'll keep it going a little longer oh you know? yeah <laughs> so yeah um I said something else I had a question about, but it, it already went. Anyway, it'll come back to me later. Um, yeah. So you want to talk about coral colors? You'll see once we drill down that for me, coloration is a byproduct of coral health. 
I still remember where I was sitting at a diner in Southern California when David Palmer asked me about coral coloration. And it was like the 200th time someone had asked me about coral color. And I started drilling down into every little thing that you can attribute to coral coloration. And I, my brain just stopped and said, health. Mm -hmm. Healthy corals look their best. So it's not just about sheer pigmentation, but it's also just how to make the corals look as good as possible in shape and polyp extension, in the thickness of the tissue, um, in just general overall the blooming, you know, the blossoming, the thriving of the coral. Because there's brown corals that are not going to really change shades, but there's a difference between an unhealthy, um, you know, light brown coral and a very healthy, you know, rich chocolatey, you know, shade of coral birds let's just call it birds <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah for for this uh argument and so for me okay yeah we're going to talk about coral coloration but i feel like the path to having the best looking coral including the most colorful coral is health mm -hmm. make the coral healthy and then all the other pieces will fall into place yeah what's I your take on uh, coral coloration you know, it's I in my opinion, uh, it, when you dive into the scientific articles around it and some of the uh, recent experiments that they've been doing around it, um, you realize it's still, in a sense, one of the least understood areas of coral biology. Um, and what I mean by that is not that we don't know how to make corals more colorful in our aquariums, right? Or um, what the coral pigments actually are or anything like that. But just the expression of those colors and what triggers it and how and why, there's still a lot of mystery around it. But the things that they do know, when you get into it, it's sort of like what you said about your conversation in California. When you get in the weeds of it, the, the extrapolated um version of it is just health right i mean uh you brought this topic up and i started to dig up some articles because i was just curious and one one research even well let's backtrack so what are coral pigments right they're proteins right they're they're either fluorescent proteins or chromatoproteins right um and they are expressed or synthesized through gene expression right um, and one of the interesting articles was talking about how um, they were talking about an acropora that had parasites on it and how that shifted gene expression within the coral where the coral could no longer spend energy, right, to express pigments to both protect and also shift, you know, certain wavelengths to benefit the zooxanthellae. It had to shift its gene expression, its resources to do something else, right? And so it's funny reading that article, and it's exactly what you said. It's like it's health, right? It had a parasite, so um, it that's all different. Comes down to health, yeah. And <laughs> and what you're saying exactly, especially in the literature, it's like, oh, this coral is like fighting off a pest, yeah. and it just can't meet all of its needs. Um, so. I love how we're, I think I'm glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here because you're, I think you're going to be, you're coming at it more of like, why are corals colorful? And it sounds like you trolled, trolled a little bit of the scientific I did, literature. I did, just because I, I had a basic it. understanding of it, but 
it's also when I read about it years ago, I was like, oh my God, they really don't know everything, you know? Mm-hmm. And then so I was like, when you brought this topic up in text, I thought, oh, I'm sure, you know, some new things have been figured out, you know? I mean, a lot of these uh, chromatoproteins weren't discovered until the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the ones, well, I mean, back, again, to backtrack, right? The first one was uh, GFP, green fluorescent protein, which was discovered in jellyfish. And then it was a Russian scientist who said, you know, corals are kind of colorful. I wonder if there's other chromatoproteins. And so he went to a pet shop and grabbed a bunch of corals. And um, there's a red chromatoprotein that was discovered in Discosoma. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, and that was, I think in the early nineties, right? So like we, which I know to some listeners is like, well, dude, that was like 30 years ago, but yeah, but you know, science is science. So it doesn't really yeah. matter. <laughs> in my book, that was like, I was in high school when that was discovered. And I guess that's longer ago than I want to admit, but to me, that still feels pretty recent. So anyway. Okay, so um, before you jump into kind of more the scientific side of stuff, I think it'd be great to inject that when we start talking about certain wavelengths. Mm-hmm. Um, but first, I really want to kind of frame this conversation, and it's it's harkening back to a lot of the things that we said. You know, there was a great article on Reef Builders about, um, you know, a Beauty Magazine covers by Jeremy Gay that we shared on Reef Builders. And so the first thing I want to tell everybody is stop comparing your corals in your tank that you see in real life to basically any photograph that you see online. Because vendors especially do everything they can to make that sale and to make their corals look good to the vendor, but also to make them look better than the other guy. You know, we've seen coral vendors just throw caution to the wind and, you know, just push the saturation and contrast uh, sliders just all the way to 100%. I'm like, come on, dude, that doesn't even look real. That doesn't even look like it was Photoshopped. <laughs> it doesn't even look Photoshopped. It looks like, you know, you, you, you know, just pushed all the sliders all the way. And it's true, right? If you look at your tank and your corals, even in the best of conditions, and then you go online, you see any of those pictures, even when we're presenting our tanks, we naturally want to present them in the best light. And it's not even, you know, limited to aquariums. If you're into cars, you're going to, you know, give your car a paint job and then, you know, photograph it or film it from the right angle with the sun bouncing off just right. And it's always going to be that MySpace angle, that, that, that really perfect angle where it's like if you see it in real life you're like okay that car is cool but it's not like whoa like i saw in the pictures and so same thing with the with the corals you know there's um a perceived coloration that is easily manipulated and you guys know this but we got to put it out there because even i fall prey to it you know a lot of these corals that you see online it might have a balanced spectrum appearance over the whole thing but you know those pictures are taken under blue light with orange filters, with heavy post-editing, right? So that's manipulation of the capture of the content. But then also, no matter what coral we're talking about, Acro, Monty, Bird's Nest, Zoanthids. I'm only kind of use Zoanthids as, a, as an example because it's not as well uh, talked about as much. But new Zoanthid polyps are brighter than old Zoanthid polyps. 
you know? And so if you just have two or three polyps on a frag plug, those are all like new growth and those are going to look their best. And as they grow out, the older polyps, they're going to dull up just a little bit. You know, they still mm -hmm. are very, very colorful. And, but saying, you know, with acros or any fast growing SPS, you know, you're concentrating the growth tips into, you know, a genetic sample, a quarter to a half inch in size. So you have all those colorful tips in one place, and then you have the crusting edge. And man, every time that coral grows out, those colors, they spread to the edge of the coral, you know? And so even if your coral looks amazing, it's very, very hard. And I would say it's just a fool's errand to try to get those, you know, activated, fast growing tips across the entire colony. But man, even like two years ago, I'd be scrolling Instagram or or Facebook, and I just see picture after picture after picture. I'm like, man, those colors are crazy. Like, what's going on? And I'd look at my corals. I'm like, you know, my corals look really healthy, but they don't look like that. And then I'd put on the, the thick orange, you know, deep orange glasses and be like, oh, yep, there it is. And it's like, I, I really want to emphasize this because even if you know this, and we're not dummies, you know, we live in the modern world, we're familiar with like makeup and Photoshop, you, you, you just kind of, it's in the back of your mind, but when you're scrolling picture after picture after picture, and it just looks like supernatural, um, it, it makes you feel like your corals aren't living up to their potential. And so that's why I'm not really on Instagram. And that's why I unfollowed a lot of accounts who show oversaturated coral colors. Yeah, I feel like it's really important to just put that out there before we even start the discussion of coral health and coral coloration. So I'll bring up another sciencey hypothesis, but it has a point to what you're saying, and that is that uh, the idea there's you know there's a general hypothesis that the tips of acro, the growth tips, have that have those pigments right to make the new coral tissue right? This new growth hospitable for colonization for those zooxanthellae that are in the other parts of that acropora, right? It's like, hey, here's some new territory for you guys to colonize. I got a nice little sunshade for you. Why don't you come on in? And those colors are cool, right? But it's, it's fleeting, right? It's always going to be only on those tips, right? And so when you see a uh, a two millimeter acro frag zoomed in for sale for 500 bucks. That's um, where the emphasis is on those pigments. It's, it's like, we're focusing on the wrong thing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, like that's, that's like you trying to get your lawn to spread in a new area. So you're going to do a little extra there, but you know, that's not what that's not the most exciting thing you got this whole other lawn right and so mm -hmm. when people talk about tenuous and growing them out and from across the room they're not that exciting it's like well yeah we were fixated on that like margin of new growth and and the and where the corals producing some pigments there now there's some exceptions to that rule like i would say the jason fox acro right the fox Keep, flame yes um that one keeps a nice yellow or green tip, you know, and just its growth form, it's, it's, it's pretty accentuated, right? So, so, but you know, those little, uh, those little blue tips or whatever that you see on some, some staghorns and stuff like that, like that's, that's not where the focus is, right? Like when you, when you, uh, when you put all the attention on that, I, I just don't get it. I mean, unless you're just going to keep 
you know, a magnifying glass on that coral for its whole existence and keep it this big. And, and constantly frag it down. Yeah. yeah. You just, you're just, you're never going to be happy. Right. So just, just stop, just unfollow, you know, the, those coral hawkers who are making you feel bad about your aquarium. Okay. Okay. I'm not saying quit Instagram. I'm just saying like, just mute or pause when, you know, scrolling through these online vendors for a week or two, and then you'll have a new baseline for looking at your aquarium and uh, you'll be surprised how nice your corals are like naturally. And it, like I said, I had to stop seeing all these pictures even in my mind like actively consciously knowing what how those corals were demonstrated and i go to my tanks and they're not necessarily blue and they're not orange yellow filtered and this is something that i tried really hard it took me years to figure out how to capture the coral coloration without you know putting the light straight into blue or using yellow orange filters because i feel like if i show these corals that are not for sale <laughs> Right, they're not for sale. If I show them like in a more natural light, then you can use your imagination on how much nicer or at least brighter they might be with blue light or and or with that yellow orange filter. Um, but you know, before we dive in to the things that improve coral health and you know subsequent coral coloration. I got to use my one uh, cussing pass <laughs> per session that we've allotted ourselves. Stop chasing goddamn rainbows, snake oil, and silver bullets. No single additive or supplement is going to make your corals healthy or colorful. It just ain't going to happen, right? It's like baking a cake. Uh, you know, some of those things can be the frosting, but if you don't have your basic ingredients, you know, to bake the cake in the first place, it's just not going to rise. Your coral's not going to be healthy, right? So some of these supplements that claim to do X, Y, and Z, and we'll dive into a couple of mm -hmm. them uh, towards the tail end. Um, it's just, it's just not going to happen. It's just so easy as a consumer and as a manufacturer to just make the, put these claims, you know, hypothetically everything breathing on your corals is going to make them a little bit prettier. I'm sure I can find a mechanism by which you uh, listening to reef therapy will make your corals more colorful, but you know, this is just, it's not true. It's just, you're not going to just add a magic anything and make your corals, you know, suddenly colorful. Right. And so um, before we can talk about those more esoteric things like aminos and trace elements, minor, uh, minor and trace elements, um, we need to talk about the fundamentals of coral health. And okay. it's just, yeah, it's just kind of, it's kind of crazy to me that yeah, people, most of the conversations are about the deep end right? The deep end of the pool, the fringes of how to make corals more colorful. There's not enough conversation on managing your salinity, you know, or easy ways, simpler ways to um, maintain a good mineral balance or nutrients. Um, you know, everyone fixates on lights. People act like they're just dialing their lights to this magical setting of spectrum and uh, intensity and duration, and boom, the corals suddenly are going to be colorful. 
but it's it's just that's not the world we live in for anything. <laughs> it's just you're not going to magically put some gas, some new extra exotic gas in your car and make it go that much faster. Okay, I do know that there's some octane boosters that'll make your car go uh, a little bit more horsepower, but it's going to be with a cost uh, on your engine, right? So that's not a great analogy. But you get what I'm saying. Like you really, we should be talking about the fundamentals more. Yeah, I agree, and I think. Um... I think light is very important when you think about the primary role of these um, fluorescent and chromatoproteins, but I think that it's also gotten to the point where um, we've narrowed that spectrum down so much that I think um, this is something we've talked about in the past. Um, There's so much flurry of excitement around fluorescent proteins, right? The ones that glow mm-hmm. under um, what we would call actinic lighting, but, you know, that 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 bluer Windexy light that, you know, makes the orange and the greens and all those glow, right? Um, but so much is lost on the other end of the non-fluorescent side, right? The chromatoproteins, the blues and the reds and these things that what happened to those, right? And so I do think light mm-hmm. matters, but all of that is also irrelevant if the environment you're keeping your corals in is crap, right? In terms of coral nutrition, whether, the, you know, water quality flow is a huge thing, right? Um, if, if those tips where the coral is growing and trying to make a hospitable environment for that zooxanthellae to colonize... If those are the colors you get excited about, then you probably want corals that grow, right? <laughs> so, um, before we jump in, you know, a little deeper into the lighting, this is another thing. Um, the coral needs to be healthy. Like I'm, I'm going to say yeah. this so many freaking times. It's going to make the listeners are patient. <laughs> like it's going to make them annoyed. You can't just plop. A coral that's been stressed for a long time, like you mentioned with pests and parasites, you can take, you know, here's a great example. I picked up a colony of fox flame at a local store. It's been sitting in a corner waiting for me to pick it up off this giant rock since the Black Friday, right? It's been fine. It's been, you know, like kind of growing, but it's brown and it just, you know, it's not in the best uh, peak form. It's not unhealthy, but this is not in peak form. I have it in great light. I have it in great flow, great nutrients, great mineral balance, all the traces, everything you could think of. It's going to take months. It's literally going to take months for that coral to wake up and start blooming right? Mm -hmm. So there's a few things about health. You need a healthy environment, but you also need a healthy coral. You can take any acro that's got some red bugs or flatworms or God forbid both. God, I feel for anyone who who might have both right now. That sucks. Um, You can put those in perfect conditions. Two to three months later, nothing will change. Because like you said, they're diverting their energy towards, you know, fighting off this infection and healing tissue that's been eaten and, you know, managing their zooxanthellae. So you can still have a perfect system. And this is the thing about Acrofrags, like you know, when you get a really healthy frag from somebody, um, we're talking about mostly acros. I think a lot of what we're talking about is going to pertain more towards SPS, but it all trickles down to every kind of coral, right? So once again, you could have, uh, you know, an unhealthy coral 
in a nearly flawless environment and ain't going to color up. You know, I have countless examples of acros that stagnated, surrounded by corals and not, not even just acros, like flower pots and uh, you know, bird's nest. And I'm just like, literally looking around and you feel is like they could be surrounded by thriving, healthy corals. And maybe that one coral's not healthy. Yeah. So I think this is something that newbies and even intermediate aquarists and even veterans need to be reminded of. Like if you have a hundred corals, they're not going to be all on the same plane of vitality. They're not all going to be thriving, right? And so yeah. that's, a, that's a message for some of the newer reefers. There's some corals that just ain't happy. And I'll tell you what, you know, some of my stalled out corals, I mean, they might sit there for two years until finally they just build up enough reserve to kind of overcome whatever it is. And the thing is, when a coral stagnates, you don't see it. But boring sponge and boring algae starts growing inside the skeleton and the coral needs to grow out of it. So it's like an infection inside that you literally can't do anything about it, right? So that's one thing I've noticed with my corals that I've stalled. I'll cut off a lot of the nasty branches. You can tell they're just a little weird and two worms start growing out of them. There's like a little bit of darkness underneath the, the tissue. Um, so... So once again, you can have perfect conditions and you can have a coral that looks okay, but it's just not activated. It's not turned on, right? So these are like, God, these are, you know, concepts that are tough to communicate, right? You know, uh, holistically across the entire board. But if you have a hundred corals, you should be expecting about two or three of them to be dying or not doing well. Another four or five just kind of be stagnating um, in even the best of circumstances, right? I think I made that point clear about coral health has to precede any kind of color that you want. Like we take that for granted, but what are some of your thoughts about, uh, about what I said? Yeah, one wild idea I've had about it, especially it was reinforced reading some of the stuff I was reading this week just to see if anything has changed in the science is that um, bringing back that example of the parasite-ridden coral having to um, reallocate resources, right, and energy uh, because it has a parasite. And they talked about coral bleaching, right, where uh, temperature is an environmental stressor that can shift gene expression, right? So it can say, hey, stop making pigments and start making, you know, proteins that protect us from heat. Um, and they, they talk about that in this article I read. Mycosporin-like amino acids? Yeah. MAAs, mycosporin-like amino acids or something like that? It's basically sunscreen, right? So when a coral gets over overheated or overlit, usually kind of at the same time, um, they have to make these MAAs, which is a very costly protein that acts as a sunscreen. And you can't see it, but that's part of why some of those, you know, bleached corals just, you know, they're, they're going to sit there and just uh, kind of stagnate for a couple months, depending on the environment, before they, you know, come back around. Yeah, and it, it I've thought about, you know, I wonder sometimes what is the cost, you know, in terms of energy to produce those chromatoproteins, those pigments, right? And if we take a coral that might be kind of doo-doo brown with some blue tips in the wild, and then in our systems, we're able to blast them with some, with the right light, uh, with in the right spectrum, and then we turn them into torts and they're purpley blue or whatever. I mean, torts look 
pretty damn good in the wild. It's a bad example, but um, sometimes you just have these SPS heads and they talk about corals just crapping out on them. Acros just like, they don't know why they did, right? And part of me wonders like, is it the opposite pendulum where we were pushing so hard to drive these corals to produce these pigments that, you know, other things had to suffer along the way in terms of nutrition, in terms of, um, you know, and I don't know, you know, it's, it's, I'm not a coral biologist by it's like trade. A, it's like a racehorse. Yeah. Right. Like a racehorse. You push it to run fast, fast, fast and it, or a boxer, you know, to just compete again and again and again. At some point the heart's going to give out, you know, corals don't have a heart, but yeah, at some point there's just, you're pushing it so far. Um, and I don't think this applies to many of our listeners because the ULNS Zeovit thing has definitely kind of faded. Yeah, that's or at a least, good example. You know, settled into something that's a little bit more appropriate. But yeah, the ULNS Zeovit uh, you know system was all about keeping the corals kind of bleached so that the pigments would come out a little bit more and then feeding them this bacterial film instead of the actual nutrients that the zooxanthellae needed, but that feeds brown. And so, yeah, you know, you and I have both seen plenty of examples of zeovit style aquariums where, okay, the colors are crazy and they were pastel, but then the tissue looked really thin. And yeah. I don't remember like any kind of great polyp extension on zeovit style uh, corals. You know, certain species, I think, uh, you know, the really shallow water, like Humulus, Digitifera, um, Samoensis, and those, you know, really shallow water, like tables, they're kind of used to that. They're used to that super shallow water that's very clean and very bright. But then for everything else, like, you don't really see, like, very healthy and colorful deep water naked acros in Zeovit-style environments. True. So that's a great point. It's just, like, overdriving well, that coral too much. And you remember before uh, before it was discovered that Interceptor would kill red bugs and was a relatively effective and safe treatment for uh, red bugs. Um, the only thing that got your corals, you know, surviving like they were on life support was amino acids, right? And it was saline for its amino acids, and you started dosing that, and it's somehow now they had the building blocks to both deal with this parasite right? As well as still continue to produce pigments and they would color up and they would brown up again, right? They were able to provide for the zooxanthellae in their tissues again. And um, it was always amazing to me, like that was such a direct observation of, holy crap, like I keep losing corals to this parasite. And as soon as I started adding this bottle, and if I would run out of it and get lazy about replacing it, I would start to experience coral loss again. And again, it's, I don't want to call it nutritional requirements. I don't know what you would call it, but it was, it allowed the coral to divide and conquer, right? It's like, okay, I now have enough resources, you know, to, to, to do both. Um, so I got a whole section on amino acids that I want to dive in specifically. Yeah, I don't want to, but let's just but, kind of circle back to the health and what you were saying about overdriving a coral. Everyone is just so hyper-focused. I think we got the flow thing down. That's thankfully, you know, I, I, I did like a hundred presentations on flow and articles. I think we got the flow thing down for the corals. Maybe not for the entire reef, but people are giving their corals pretty good flow. So I think we can check that off the list. Yeah. Um, people are chasing pH pretty hard and they're really aware of keeping their mineral balance up. 
But with that, there's no one ever really talks about salinity, right? So you could have proper flow, proper temperature, pH, calcium, alkalinity, magnesium, but your salinity could be a little too low or a little too high. And if you're not really paying attention, you know, you might get up into 37 parts per thousand, 38 parts per thousand, especially if you're dosing a lot on a small tank with a ton of stony corals and lots of mineral demands. There are sodium and chloride ions that build up if you're not doing your water changes, you know, like we talked about at the beginning. And so you could have all the most obvious things, you know, lined up, but then the most important one, salinity could be, um, usually I'm just going to say it's slipping high, you know, just kind of creeping up high. Uh, I don't think too many people's reef tanks start to creep low, but you could have just like every box tick, but then you're not really paying attention to the most important for seawater, which is salinity. And it's like the most fundamental and basic thing. And it's so easy to fix up or down, right? So you might be, you know, pulling your hair out and, and dosing this and dosing that and using this system or that method. And you're either you're not checking salinity or you're using, you know, your conductivity probe wrong or using your refractometer that hasn't been, you know, calibrated. And there's just make sure if you're chasing coral coloration via coral health, make sure to check off those fundamentals. Make sure you've got something to check your thermometer and something to check the thing that checks your thermometer. You're right. Like just make sure you know in your bones what your temperature is. And then same thing with your salinity. Make sure you really know what your salinity is like. I mean, for any professional listening to this who has tested somebody's water and seen that salinity just whack low or crazy high, you know how many times this is a problem. I don't know how many people talk about this, or at least not nearly enough, especially the no water change crowd, right? So that's just one example. So I think we got the flow down. Mm -hmm. And I think we've talked recently about at least my struggles with bottomed out nutrients. I have chased the rainbow. I have gone after every waterfall, after every esoteric trace element and additive and amino acid. And I swear to God, nothing has impacted my coral health and vitality and subsequent coral coloration like adding some phosphate. Because I did not realize that they were 0.0000, you know, how many zeros you want to put on there. They were just so tightly bound in the system. And then I was feeding the fish and I was feeding the corals. And at the end of the day, there was just, there was no substitute from, from literally adding some phosphate to the aquarium. And, uh, you know, so that's just another one of those things. We've gone to war against nutrients for the last 20 or 30 years because of algae. And um, maybe you've gone too far. You know, I'd be I'd be interested to see how many of uh, tanks that actually have algae problems in the form of even coralline, valonia, hair algae, um, actually have you know very 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 low levels of nitrogen or phosphorus in their tanks. So you know, they seem obvious, and that is specifically why they get overlooked and ignored. Yeah, I agree. I think um, I think the thing about algae is that the if you think about the things that 
algae needs to grow and the things that um, zooxanthellae need and corals need, um, they overlap in a heavy way. And and, and it's especially the same when, damn thing, right? And in a nutrient starved situation, a coral may have a competitive advantage over algae, right? Because algae can grow a lot quicker if there's the bioavailability of the nutrients to allow it to do so. Now, if you could somehow magically not let algae take over and elevate those nutrients, I think that it'd still be a better situation for the coral to a point, right? I mean, phosphates do get in the way, supposedly at a certain level in terms of mineralization of uh, carbonates and calcium to build skeletons and all that fun stuff. But but to your point, it's um, it reminds me of like uh, chemotherapy where you know, one of the treatments for cancer is to add this poison that kills their cancer cells, but it's also toxic to your body cells, right? And you're, and you try to target it as much as you can to kill one thing before it kills the host, right? And that's poison, that's not starvation, but it's almost like when you start to starve your tank out of nutrients to kill the algae or eliminate the algae, there is a, there's a by byproduct, right? There's a side effect of that, that you're also starving everything else, right? So um, I think in your case, it sounds like you found a good, a good recipe, right? Like that works. Um, mm -hmm. And there's plenty of examples. I mean, I, I was talking to Richard Ross at the Aquatic Expo. I mean, there's plenty of examples, of course, of tanks that have really elevated phosphates and have not seen much of an issue, right? Uh, a part of that is, you know, having good herbivores, you know, that's that sort of that magic trick of like, hey, here's nutrients and if left unchecked, the algae is going to go crazy, but it's not left unchecked because I got crap eating it. Mm -hmm. And something I said in a previous podcast is why green algae scares me a lot less than dinoflagellates and cyano because I can find something to eat green algae, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody's found anything yet to eat cyano. I mean, there, this I've I've seen you know sites talk about certain snails that'll eat it, and I don't I don't believe for a second that's true. Um, I think they maybe just stir it up and make it look like it went away in a certain area. Um, so there's something to be said of like if you're growing a little bit of turf in your overflow box, you know. Uh, but in the tank, it looks okay because you got herbivores mowing it down. They just can't get to the overflow box. It's probably a good situation for your That's corals. That's a great indicator yeah. that your tank is, you know, supporting this, you know, higher level algae versus a, you know, really, um, protist like, um, dinoflagellate or cyanobacteria. Yeah, that's the primordial soup, right? Like that's the stuff that colonized You'll the never earth. Win. Yeah. Yeah. You'll never win against the soup. The yeah. soup will be here after all the nukes are set off. <laughs> They're right. going to have a party. You know what I mean? <laughs> we can, we can, you know, crap on, you know, green turf algaes, but uh, they are a finicky species too. You know, they need, they need a good environment to uh, thrive. <laughs> so anyway, but yeah. Um, so, so provided you got your salinity in check, your temperature in check, your pH is not radically low. Um, you have great flow, you have good nutrients. All right, we could, let's talk about lighting a little bit, but this is not going to make or break your corals. There was a time, there was a time when we had, what, three basic metal halides to choose from and like 
four or five different fluorescent lamps to choose from. There was a time when there was a big difference in coloration between running a 10K yeah. helite and running a 20K radium. Okay. But nowadays, you know, you're using a Kessel, you're using a Radeon, you're using a Hydra, you're using a, a Refled. I mean, any of these, even mid range to flagship lights, you're going to do fine. You're going to do fine. It's just going to be a lot more personal preference as far as like features and maybe like the overall color spectrum. But these have all been engineered over a decade of led lights built off like two more decades of halide and fluorescent lights to to, to work right <laughs> i don't think there's a single light you'll find in a reef store that is not or you're going to keep you from from having nice corals right so just kind of forget about the light but there's a few things that you can impact with your light right you got spectrum you got intensity and you got duration and maybe yeah. to a lesser degree, like spread and overlap. And I would just, I would steer again, our, our listeners back to our session on overdoing it. You're going to get in a lot more trouble overdoing it. And it's just, even with a par value, right? This is one of those things like, I have all the par meters in the world. I've had them for years. I have so many variations. It's not even funny. I make your head spin. I almost never take par measurements because the corals adapt. I only take par measurements at the extremes, at the very dimmest tank and in the very brightest tank. Cause I just want to know, you know, what my boundaries are. And, uh, you know, so next to how do I make my colors colorful is like, how do I run my light? And the best thing is, is just run it bluer, run it shorter and run it dimmer and then slowly ramp it up to a point that, you know, your corals and your tank can handle. But there's, we were trying to balance out two things, right? We're trying to balance the ecology of the aquarium, especially when it's newer, and the needs of the coral, right? So I have no problem putting acros in a tank on day one, but I also know that if I light up the tank the way the coral needs on day one, or just even say a few weeks or a couple months in, the ecology of the aquarium may not have caught up to be able to handle the algaes that we just discussed. But if you ramp it up slowly, dude, that brown acro, he ain't going to die. He ain't right. going to die. He's going to be a little doo-doo brown. But you know what? He's going to be building up his reserves. He's going to have a lot more you know, fat and tissue and going to get really super thick, shaggy polyps to when you finally you know, ramp up your light to the point that it, you know, it can really blossom. It's going to be ready because it'll have all those reserves. That's another question. People are always like, oh, how soon can I add acros? I'm like... How long you got? <laughs> How long do you have? I I do think uh, I do think modern lights have have shot us in the foot, and we've we've done some damage to ourselves with them because. So, back in the day, five thousand K fluorescent and metal halides lacked a lot of the violet and blue, you know sub 500 nanometer wavelengths, right? Um, the Iwasaki was a freak of nature because it was a 6,500 Kelvin bulb, but hidden in all that yellowy white light was a ton of that sub 500 nanometer wavelength. The 20Ks, the 14Ks, you know, they had a ton. And so we started to see some really cool colors, right? Um, then the focus on lighting now is all sub 500 nanometers, right? 
it's 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 the blue tanks right the windex mm-hmm. tanks and um it's interesting when you go look up uh fluorescent proteins other than green and blue and you start to look at the red chromato and fluorescent proteins well i don't think there's any red fluorescent proteins those are all chromato but <coughs> take yellow for example there's fluorescent there's also chromato proteins and you look at the nanometers where they are uh where there's emission and excitation right yellow is all in the 500s right that's that's the green wavelength right that's the green leds that we're all turning to zero on our LED lights. We wonder why yellow sarcophyte and elegance is now beige. Well, nobody's pumping That's my out unicorn. Well, but nobody's pumping out greens green spectrum over their tanks anymore, right? Reds are also in the 5 to 600 nanometer range, right? So, you know, we always look at the chlorophyll wavelength chart and we focus on chlorophyll A, B, and C. And then, of course, the GFPs and the orange ones, like that, those are all excited in that 400, you know, ish nanometer uh, blue LED light, which is why it looks so cool. And we put on our orange sunglasses. Um, but we're leaving so much on the table, right? I mean, absolutely. Every recommendation I see is okay, you're going to grab your radion and you're going to take your greens and your reds and you're going to turn them to zero. And then adjust your white to like what you personally like, which is visually aesthetic to your eyes. I'm like, well, yeah, there goes a lot, a large range of potential colors that your corals could express genetically. It's That's sort of my opinion on why lighting does matter. And I'd be curious for somebody to try to take some of these beige sarcophyte elegance and like pump up some green spectrum light over them you know, turn up the greens and so see. So I'm, I'm taking a, a slightly different approach. Okay. And, um, all right, all right. So let's just talk about lighting for a second. I feel like this could be a whole nother, another ball of wax, but um, certain wavelength of lights can, they do two things. They, they bring out colors and they stimulate the colors. If you have... Let's just say, let's just say, um, you know, an underlit or overnutriated green slimer, because that's a great example. It'll be brown. It'll mm-hmm. be greenish, right? You put a bluish light on it. It's going to show what green is already there. But over a period of a few weeks to a few months, depending on the um, energy in your system, it's going to stimulate more th- more of that green fluorescent protein production. Right. So every, like you said, there's an excitation and a stimulation. Right. So all of this light does two, th- you know, mm-hmm. kind of has a double edged sword, but it's not, I guess it's, it's two edges on the same side. <laughs> it's not like a, a catch 22. And so for me, you know, okay, so blue light, r- blue and royal blue uh, wavelengths, let's just say 440 to 400, 480 nanometers, that's going to show you your blue chromoproteins. But if you want blue fluorescent proteins, you need a higher wavelength, 
whatever color you're trying to show off, you need a higher wavelength than that to excite it. So to excite the blue fluorescent proteins, you really need like that 400 to 425 nanometer. And I know not a lot, a lot of people are even thinking about blue corals. I'm a blue cor blue acro specialist over here. Anyone saw my video yesterday on the Immortal Tort? I promise you that coral, we turned down the saturation <laughs> on our videos so it does, so it looks more realistic because these corals are so blue. But there's chroma protein and there's fluorescent protein. And when I finally get you a piece of the hardline hoaxamai, you're going to see that too. Um, and so that 400 to 430 nanometer is going to excite the blue fluorescent protein on top of the blue chroma protein that's excited at uh, high wavelengths like 440 to 470. Does that make sense? So you need that whole blue light sandwich to bring out the blue chroma proteins and the blue fluorescent proteins on top of it. And there's there's no rule that says a coral has to have both. Right. Right. Blue, you know, like uh, you know, purple tongue of bullseyes, they're purple chromoprotein. They are not purple fluorescent protein. Right. I don't know that there's actually anything that's fluorescent purple naturally occurring anyway, because those would probably be a blend of two things. And so you can take that analogy on blue chromo versus fluorescent protein and apply it to everything else. And I'm chasing that yellow sarcophyte and elegans. My understanding, of course, if it's just chromoprotein that we're talking about, um, you want that yellowish green light to kind of bring it out. But I'm, I'm dabbling with hitting it with more of the 400 to 430 nanometer because when you take that away, you get yellow color also. And I have this really great guide to coral color management from my buddy Aiji Myron in um, Japan. It's all in Japanese, but there's a, a few of us that are lobbying to try to get this translated. Um, but this is all about basically lighting and the coral coloration, but it's uh, fully in Japanese. But he's been working on this for, you know, dozen plus years. So he really knows what he's talking about. I can't wait to crack into this. But yeah, the the whole lighting aspect is just... Yeah, you can do everything right, but you first of all, your coral's got to be healthy. Um, yeah. But before someone asks the question, I'm just going to throw it out there because I know this will be useful to some folks. Um, when I program my LED lights, I kind of consider it like two different photo periods. And I will set a baseline of blue. Um, let's just call it the A channel. Let's call it and I'll set that for what I want to be the, the whole photo period. If it's a new tank, it's going to be about eight hours up to 10 hours. If it's, I'm keeping it a little dimmer, um, 12 hours, it's going to be a higher energy tank and I'll set my blues. I'll set the UVs all the way, violet, royal blues, you know, I'll ramp that up within an hour or so. Blue is the only one I'm starting to turn down because I'm starting to notice that it, it drowns out some of the other colors. It's just such a strong color that I'll bring down the blue. So I have my my A channel um, of, you know, photo period, and that's the from the beginning to the end. And then um, what I call the more nutritious spectrum, that'll be the white lighting and the warm white, which is really going to contribute the most to the brightness. I'll set that usually for about 50% to two-thirds of the overall photo period. So let's just say six to eight hours. And we'll call that, um, I don't know, let's call it the B channel, right? And then for the red and green, um, I'll just kind of spike those up in the middle of the day for, you know, at the, to concur with mm -hmm. the peak of intensity of the A channel blues, of the B channel whites. And let's call that 
the plus channel. So now you got your AB plus spectrum, right? So this is what I've been doing for a very long time. So it's kind of like the advent of controllable LED lights. Our first LED lights weren't really controllable. We just kind of had to run with the spectrum, but that's how I do my color spectrum. And you know what? If you want to throw your UV onto that plus channel or that plus, you know, programming, um, that's also optional, but my tanks are, are fine with it being part of the A channel. And so that's where the AB plus comes from. If anybody was ever wondering, do you have any um, preferences on your lighting for general like health and vitality and core coloration? Yeah. I mean, I, I use a lot more green and red than I think and, and white. I mean, that's, I guess the forgotten color, but the white LEDs, I tend to, uh, I, I tend to go for more of what I would originally call like a 14 K spectrum, right? So if you take any of your led, uh, programmable lights where instead of dialing the individual dials and you said, Oh, just choose it by Kelvin. I know AI does that. I don't know. I don't, I've never owned an Ecotex. I don't know how that works. But Mobius finally just dropped the color slider. So they've had a lot of presets. Yeah. But it was literally about a month ago. They have a Kelvin slider, which is awesome for dialing because left to my own devices, I'm just, I'm just going to do what I told you, right? Yeah. Manipulate the blues in one way, the whites in one way, and the accessory channels like uh, red and green and sometimes violet, you know, just kind of as an afterthought. Um, but, uh, but yeah, now with the Kelvin slider, when I'm doing kind of like live preview, um, it's it really helps to kind of bring out some more of those and the only tip i have for red and green is don't push it too much and always kind of run at the same level i think most manufacturers are running about the same amount of red and greens and if you run the red and green out of balance your tank will be a little too red or a little too green yeah i um what's your take on pink because it i think uh i mean you're still dabbling in every type of coral imaginable imaginable but for instance, I don't see a lot of people with pink millipores anymore. Um, another coral, I don't I think, see. I think they're, they're out there, I'm sure, but I just don't see them very often. They're not. They're well, not. Well, it doesn't show up super well under dark blue lighting, right? You yeah. definitely need want that daily daylight spectrum to bring out more of that pink. But if you're talking about actual pink, are you talking about pink colors or pink LEDs? Pink colors. Yeah, I'm talking about pink expression. Okay, okay, right? okay. Uh, I'm talking about. Um, Bird's Nest, I'm talking about uh, Stylophora. white. Nothing yeah. activates it better than warm white LED. And that's why I've been pushing, like, if, if any manufacturer want to replace basically all cool whites with all warm whites, or if you don't want to go that far, go with neutral whites. Man, yeah, your pink poslaporous, pink bird's nest. Those are chromoproteins, not to yeah. be confused with the fluorescent proteins of like pink millies. Um, those look incredible under like a dark orange fluorescent lamp where you can turn all your reef lights off. And if you have like one, uh, you know, compact CFL bulb uh, somewhere that's on, those pinks will really glow in a, in a crazy way. Well, and I think the question you have to ask a coral or a coral is going to ask you if it could talk is, well, why would I? So I have, I have the code to express various colors, right? In my genetic makeup, why would I express pink chromatoproteins or um, yellow if I don't have to, right? Um, and so that's sort of where 
I think things have gone a bit awry with lighting. Um, those corals, mm-hmm. those colors and corals have fallen out of favor in certain areas. Not so much. I mean, you got pink booby nope. chalice and, um, but you don't, I, I no, don't but know. Definitely the pink fluorescent proteins, those you can bring out with like heavy blue, but really pink chroma proteins, yeah. man, you need that warm white. Nothing will activate it more. But um, I think that's great that you mentioned that about the coating because for sure these pigments are made up of certain elements. Mm-hmm. Right. And even if the coral is super healthy, if it's missing some you know critical trace elements, it's not going to be able to produce those. Right. And so there is something to be said for major and minor trace elements, you know, yeah. iodine, iron, you know, very minute amounts of, of copper, nickel, molybdenum and zinc. Those are all inside of our salt mixes. You know, I know one of the few things they, they don't put in there is like rubidium and neodymium, right? Like that's um, in the ocean in trace amounts. But if you like, I think a, the best example would be um, the Red Sea Coral Care Program. If you look, they have, you know, on top of their calcium and um, buffer, they have um, the, the A, B, C, D, or is it one, two, three, four? And each bottle will tell you, okay, this one's got a little bit more potassium. This one's got a little bit more iron. This one's got a little bit more of the halides, like iodine and fluoride. Ride. And to be fair, like most tanks, most corals are not going to be missing color because those things are too low. But if but if you have a tank that is really packed with corals, especially a ton of stony corals, um, those things will get depleted out to a point. But it might be whereas like you could dose that once a month, just a tiny bit once a month, and you're going to satisfy those needs. It doesn't have to be in the water. Right, it doesn't have to be testable by your ICP test for the coral to already have it sequestered inside of its tissues and kind of have a little bit of reserve for producing those pigments. So I think some of the trace elements will help to, you know, what they're not going to develop color. They're not going to just randomly magically bring out color, but they will intensify some of the existing color. But that's long after you have already healthy coral. You're already giving them a really great environment in which they can thrive. So I've grown a bit skeptical about that in the sense that I think the availability of those trace elements do you got to spend money on trace element additives or do you just have to do occasional water changes to have some availability of those trace elements? Um, there's a, there's a site called, I think, addgene.org and they, so they study chromatoproteins and they essentially insert that DNA. I'm simplifying things greatly here, and some geneticist is going to want to beat me over the head. But <laughs> oh, wait, you're not give, telling us the entire thesis of coral coloration in two sentences? Gosh, Mark, what's wrong with you? But they're basically taking E. coli bacteria and having and, and, and basically codifying gene expression within E. coli bacteria to produce different chromatoproteins, right? And so they have all these great pictures of E. coli growing on a Petri dish and creating a rainbow of colors, right? And um, when I started to do some research about the the value of trace elements, like they don't care about that, right? <laughs> they don't care about how much 
um, I don't know. I mean, iodine, I don't get me wrong. I think iodine is very valuable, but they don't care about, you know, things like uh, bromine and stuff like that in terms of getting these bacteria to produce these pigments, right? To synthesize these that pigments. That is going to be very important when we talk about amino acids. And I, you know, I, I respectfully disagree that I, I do think like, okay, if you have a new tank, an average tank or kind of lower energy corals, you know, chalices, LPS and stuff, um, you're going to totally satisfy whatever trace element needs that they have through simple, basic periodic water changes. Totally on board with you there. But my tanks particularly are just chock full of coral. I mean, it's like the 10% or more of the volume of the water is actually living coral. And I, I do see a difference when I add very small amounts of these trace metals. But you, you're, I think we're both right, right? It's not a binary thing. It's totally a gradient. So if your coral is healthy, it's going to show off some of that color and dosing some of these trace and minor elements is, is it is going to intensify a little bit, but that's not just going to get you to the finish line, right? You got to right. do the work first of making a healthy, happy coral. And then you might see some small differences and, you know, certain things, um, maybe like some, some flower pots and some of the, you know, more exotically colored acro tips are probably going to give you, a. Uh, uh, more mileage when it comes to dosing some of these trace elements, but just most things like, you know, let's just say scolies and zoanthids and, uh, you know, cinerina, uh, they're just, they're, they're just one tiny little dose and they're probably good for half a year. You know, they're just not going to run out. That pigment just doesn't necessarily go away because you're also growing them in lower light. Yeah. But I mean, bromine in seawater is 65 parts per million, right? So if it's 30 parts per million or 65 or 85, is that really going to make a, I guess, like, I understand your point where you have such a dense coral population and such a small body of water. That totally makes sense to me. But I think also just in general for most tanks, it, you know, when you get Absolutely. your, when you get your ICP test and it's like, oh, your bromine's about 30 you parts should per million too care. low. I really don't think that makes too much of a difference in color, but that's just my opinion. I could be way no, wrong. I think right? there's there's a, you know, um, iron, iodine, zinc, a little bit of copper, a tiny bit of nickel. I think those things are more important. But then yeah. the, the kind of the uh, accessory uh, trace elements, uh, fluoride and bromine and these things we don't think about, we simply don't know. And I, I'm picking right? on bromine I do because believe that's one that. I see vendors talk up, right? Like talk up a big mm -hmm. game about. Dude, they're always they're always talking about the next the yeah, thing that has been talked about recently, or <laughs> you know, yeah. bromine, or fluoride, or molybdenum, or manganese. Yeah. But um, I think those levels can actually be zero, and your corals be satisfied. Yeah. Right. If you like, so when I dose um, activate, um, this has got a suite of these metals. I am hoping that my ICP test comes back zero because I do see the effect on my corals. But that's only now that, again, I have very healthy corals. There's still a few that are stagnated or just kind of, you know, hibernating alive. And um, I know that they're getting those traces. They don't have to read in the water. But for sure, if your tank is newer or kind of lower density, um, you shouldn't either not have to worry about those kind of trace elements ever or two you shouldn't have to worry about them for like a year or two or three until your tanks really starts to get so crowded that water changes aren't enough 
Yeah. I do believe that they're important, but just tiny, tiny bits. But once again, the healthiness of the coral, yeah. the, the vitality of the coral, that's 80 to 90% of the game, right? So right now we're talking about the icing on the cake. Agreed. Um, but before I dive into kind of my last major point of amino acids, um, we should definitely talk about how to tell if your coral is healthy. Okay. Because it's not necessarily obvious. What do you think? You know, when you look at a coral, what are your indications of like coral health and vitality? Um, to me, I think one is, is it growing, right? Two um, is the, I don't know how to put it, the quality of the tissue on the coral. And that's a weird Dude, right way there. to define it. No. Right? <laughs> It's it's very hard to define. That's why yeah. we don't talk about it. Everybody focuses on how expanded the polyp is, right? And okay, sure. Um, by and large, an unhealthy coral is just not going to, you know, puff out its chest in the same way as a healthy coral whale, right? Um, some of these fresh wild corals might be very colorful, but those might be residual pigments, right? And so you can look at a coral and tell. Is it wild? Is it cultured? But definitely the quality of the tissue. And it's it's really hard to describe that on a chalice coral, on turbinaria, on any coral. But if you take, you know, very big opposite extremes, if you know a coral's growing in high nutrients, it's gonna be it's gonna be fat. <laughs> it's yeah. gonna be thick in tissue, probably gonna have very, you know, luscious polyps and tentacle extension, whereas one that's eaten too much light or too bright or exposed to just a little bit too much copper they're going to be they're going to have a skinny appearance right and uh, that's going to apply to montes and birds nests and acros and stylos and you can just you know when they're really healthy you can kind of see the separation or the thickness of it yeah. especially under good lighting yeah between like the asinosteum is the name of the skin basically between the core lights and the skeleton you know that if you touch that asinosteum is going to be a little bit of give or the coral will then retract you know so definitely um you know how much tissue is on that stony coral that's going to be a big one that's going to be a, a really big one to tell if a coral is healthy for sure yeah it's you that's a good way to put it i, I didn't know how to put it in the words but it's it's just a you know, it's that visual reef keeping for me, right? Where I like the, the things that are hard to talk about don't get talked about. Yeah. Right. Have you ever seen a thread on any of the forums over the last 20 years talking about coral skin? <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you know, you've maybe heard it mentioned in passing, but no, there's not enough conversation about the thickness of the tissue that's on top of the skeleton because you can't measure it. You just kind of have to eyeball it. And through experience, you kind of know. That's why Montes are such canary in the coal mines for me because they seem so, they're very thin skinned to me, right? I mean, um, they have a By ton large, of polyps, so, yeah. you know, they're just, I, I don't know. I mean, not that acros aren't, but there's something about Montes that just feel like you could rub the tissue right off, you know, with just a quick, whisk of your finger um and so when when things are off with your tank to me montes are real quick to let you know which is funny because they're also the quickest to recover like a monty will Absolutely. turn a corner like it's nothing 
Whereas in acro, it may take like a month and a half to 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 see like okay, I think we're gonna be okay, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. You know, you get those frags that and come in like during lines. a winter storm, those acro frags, and you're like, oof, exactly where I was going. Yeah, <laughs> you put them on your frag. A rack vendor could and you're send like, you. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. A, a vendor could pack up some perfectly healthy, luscious, vibrant, great polyp extension acros. And if they get exposed, even just for a short period of time, to really stressful cold or heat, man, it actually, they might land okay. And then like over the next week or two, just really go downhill. And then, you know, you're, you're right. Like if, if everything is provided, you're talking about another month or two for that coral to recover and just kind of really get back to where, to where it was yeah yeah that's it's funny like to me monty seems so delicate yet in another way they're so hardy because once you fix whatever's wrong they're like i'm back i'm back guys you know whereas an acro is you know you'll you'll be in a touch and go state for that little bit longer um even though to me acros you know larger polyps they seem a little more robust in appearance but they're you know they're definitely not uh, oh, that's not mm. always the case. Um, and, and, you know, thin skinned acros, like your deep water acros and stuff, they definitely have yet, they're, they're more on that not so hardy spectrum again. Right. So, um, but I mean, even with LPS, they're forgiving right? in your tank, they're yeah. forgiving inside your tank, but they're a lot less forgiving in between. Yeah. Going from tank to tank to tank, you know, and if you, especially if you over like them, they really don't like that. They want a lot more juice in the water, a lot more nutrients. And, um, you know, if you, if you over like them, you're going to pay the price for, for, for a while. Yeah. But agreed. yeah, um, I'm, I'm very happy with how this uh, session of retherapy is going on. I think we've touched on almost all the major points. Did you have any more um, kind of uh, discoveries in your scanning of the scientific literature regarding like pigment yeah. protein, uh, uh, pigment, what everything before um, I'm going to close it out with amino acids after your um, discussion, your scientific discussion. One good thing I read um, was about insert, 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 delete polymorphism and um, how that creates frame shift mutation. Now, that's a lot. That's, you know. (laughs) Dude, I have a scientific background and that's a lot for me. (laughs) Well, so it was an interesting point about uh, how you can put two corals identical species of corals under the exact same light, the exact same flow. And let's just say their gene expression of chromatoproteins is pink, right? One of them might be a hell of a lot more pink and exciting to a hobbyist than the one right next to it, even though they're in the identical environments. And it talked about how, so, uh, Insert deletion polymorphism is very, as I think it was first discovered in humans, but it's like, hey, we have the same genetic code, right? We have the same script to execute, right? The same programming language and same language written. But what can happen is as pieces of DNA get inserted and then deleted, when DNA is read like code, it's like read in sections, right? And so when you insert or delete something, 
Um, think about the, what are those things where you insert the pictures and you like as a kid and you would hit the little button and spin the little wheel of pictures. You know, remember those things when you were a kid? Oh, I picture it, but I can't remember what it's called. Or as somebody who speed reads, right? Like if you ever learn about speed readers, like they don't read just one word at a time, right? They read a grouping of words at a time. But imagine if you shift their frame of reference over a bit, right? They don't get the first sentence or the first word in the sentence, right? All of a sudden, so in, in when you're talking about binary code, ones and zeros, for example, where you start and where you end, if you're going to read, let's say, 10 lines or 10 bits at a time, matters, right? And so they're talking about how this polymorphism exists because that insert delete mutation means that the code is being read. And again, I apologize to all geneticists. Um, <laughs> from a different frame, basically, at a time. And so that can actually impact how often that gene expression is expressed, right? And so you could have two millipora, acropora milliporas, and one's like hot bubblegum pink, and the other one's kind of a subdued pink, right? And it's sort of an interesting idea about us and our hobby and fragging corals where you could get two different corals and be like, I'm not paying top dollar for that $500 frag. I'm going to get this wild caught colony. That's probably the same thing. And then you're pushing so hard to get it to look like this top dollar frag. But that insert delete polymorphism could just mean that yours is just not as vibrant, right? It mm -hmm. doesn't express as much pink or whatever your favorite color in that coral is. It was an interesting read because they were trying to understand how in the wild they would find these two corals and they they expressed the different amount where they synthesized the different amount of coral pigments between two corals even though they were identical in every other way. Um, that was I kind of an interesting read. I think that might explain read. some of the like splattered moon corals, mm -hmm. you know, the favia, the favites, um, montastria where like – Half of it will be green and the other half will be red. And I'm just totally oversimplifying. But you've seen these. Yeah. Um, we're seeing these in pectinias where like half the colony is kind of like a dark olive with red mouths. And then the other side is like pistachio. And it's clearly yeah. the same coral. It's not a chimera of some kind. And I think um, that's probably getting close to the best explanation I can come up with, with um, some of these older classic strains of aquarium chalices. Um, I'm thinking the bubblegum monster and the watermelon alien eye in particular, and even just like that red chalice that you and I got at Cappuccino mm -hmm. Bay like 18 years ago, um, you, you just let it sit there and grow for a while. You get these purple splotches, you get these green splotches, you get these weird streaks, and then you just, you know, you'll see um, what they call the, the Goku chalices that are, you know, neon orange with just these really irregular um, patches of green or kind of teal pistachio color. And, you know, some of them are like melting pot and crazy rainbow. And um, that that's probably the best explanation where for some reason that group of coral is expressing it differently across a few inches. Right? In the Not same like exposure several feet. Of, yeah, yeah exactly. even a small frag of, um, I think what's the, the jelly bean and some of these other chalices that are just black and red and green with yellow mouths. Um, I think that might be one of the best explanations we've come up with for uh, what you're talking about. The uh, insert, delete codon? Polymorphism, Polymorphism codon, right? yeah. 
Um, insertion then, deletion polymorphism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Google it, Google frame shift mutation. Uh, again, somebody's probably going to comment and school me on how I got some of that wrong or a lot of it or all of it wrong. But uh, this is just <laughs> stuff that I was reading that I was like, this is, if I'm understanding this right, this is pretty interesting, you know, of, of you know, why, why are some pink acropore millipores more pink than others, right? And, and, even and we're if seeing you, that a lot more with the, the Solomon Island millies, right. they have a, so much color from branch to branch. It can be, you know, a six inch colony and one section is really orange and the other side is like green and then pink. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. So, you know, I wonder if that, I wonder if that has any application with the GFP infection. Yeah. Like, I'm pretty confident that the GFP gets introduced, but if it plays into all of this, but, um, I think that, um, all other things being equal, you've got good light, you've got healthy coral, you're keeping up on your salinity and your chemistry and your minerals and your nutrients. The only thing that I can recommend after just a little kiss of trace and minor element dosing is amino acid. Now, mm. tell the story again about the red bugs and the coloration because I feel like that's worth repeating. Yeah, I mean, anybody that's lived through red bugs and seen what they do to Acropora, it's, um, I mean, they just start to, um, you know, starve. Yeah, yeah, it's a good, yeah, it's, and, and like we talked about that they tissue thickness, like they just look sickly. Um, and as, you can kind of spot a coral from across the room, like with experience. Yeah. An acro that has red bugs looks very different from one that is very healthy or one that has flatworms. Yeah. Right. And and it's because that coral's really struggling to to heal itself from all this micropredation that's happening across the entire coral. Yeah, like uh, the for me the ones that were always the worst were um like the bonsai acro or uh, acropora nasuta. Those mm -hmm. just man, they just took a dive when they would get infected with red bugs. But I just remember dosing, and I don't know what amino acid complexes in Salifert, but that was the only one available at the time. We didn't have Acropower or any of that stuff. We're talking 2000 and, 2002, maybe? One, um, 2001. Yeah, I mean, we're talking a long time ago, right? I mean, the LED lighting didn't exist. Um, and um, it... it was just another one of those accidental discovery where you start adding it. And then, you know, that bonsai acro started to turn a corner and it did start to color up again and i wouldn't say that it started growing like you weren't out of the woods you know no it, it's, no 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 it just gave it like a chance to survive and it was fascinating you know if there was any question ever if amino acids make a difference or if they're actually even used by the coral or use a bowl um, just go throw some red bugs in an experimental tank and dose it with amino acids and, you know, report back. I mean, obviously that's not the solution to red bugs, um, but it, it confirmed, it at least solidified my bias that amino acids are highly uh, effective and usable for um, corals, particularly stony corals. I mean, I mm -hmm. the jury's still out on soft corals for me on that, but there just hasn't been a a good example where amino acids came in and saved the day like they did with my acropora. So, well, so, so funny story. 
is um, I actually, so where does the dosing of amino acids come from? Right, uh, you know, salivary amino acids came out of nowhere, and um, it turns out that there's one paper I'm trying to pull up with my internet turned off. <laughs> um, goodness, do you have it? Do you have the link uh, pulled up by chance? I, I can pull it up. Yeah, uh, by Lisa M. Fitzgerald and Alina M. I can't pronounce that last name. Okay, so in Schmanser. 1997, there was a paper um, biosynthesis of essential amino acids by sclerotinian corals. And this paper was uh, by Fitzgerald and Alina Smont. And funny story, I actually worked for Dr. Smont uh, right out of college working on um, coral spawning and stuff like that. But I've taken a few excerpt uh, from the paper, again, grossly oversimplifying. But this is really important because I kind of feel like it, amino acids are an important puzzle piece into this whole conversation we're having about achieving coral coloration through coral health, right? Okay, so the paper starts out, and this applies to all animals. Animals rely on their diet for amino acids that they are incapable either of synthesizing or of synthesizing in sufficient quantities to meet their metabolic needs. These are called essential amino acids. So all metazoans, that means all multicellular, that means basically everything that moves, right? Um, we can synthesize most of the amino acids that we need. But of the ones that we can synthesize, some of them we can synthesize every, all that we need, you know? And some of them we can synthesize some of what we need. And this is why we eat, you know, a variety of foods, not just the things that we need for fat and protein and essential like um, you know metals for growth. So these amino acids are literally the building blocks. So your corals, they can synthesize most of these amino acids, right? But if they're growing really fast, they're not going to be able to synthesize a certain subset of all that they need, right? So there's three categories. They can synthesize. This applies to us. We can synthesize everything we need. We can synthesize some, but not enough. And there's some we just cannot make for ourselves. So some groups are able to synthesize all of the 20 protein amino acids, plants, fungi, and bacteria, and protists. But all animals studied so far lack a number of amino acid synthetic pathways. So they just cannot make them. And in the paper, if you really dive into it, um, the corals as a unit appear to synthesize certain things that other animals can't make. But it's believed that some of those are actually bacteria inside the coral that's synthesizing that, right? And um, towards the end, despite the apparent ability of corals to synthesize some essential amino acids, Rates of amino acid synthesis seem to be greater for those amino acids that are typically non-essential and slower for those amino acids that are typically essential, right? So in an ideal world, like the ocean, the coral is, you know, is, is, you know, is firing on all cylinders. Zooxanthellae is helping with some of those amino acids. The bacteria inside their tissue are helping with some of those. They're catching phytoplankton with some of those. They're catching zooplankton. They're catching epitokes of um, annelid worms. They're catching just marine snow. Just they're just they're literally getting it from the wild, 
right? But this whole giant menu that's just not practical to give to our corals. And so this is where I feel like amino acids, there hasn't really been a great conversation about them, right? Because when you say you have amino acids in your product, you're basically saying I have things. <laughs> I have stuff in my supplement yeah. or my additive. And there's, I don't know, dozens and dozens of amino acid supplements on the market. Let's say Brightwell, Zeovit, Acropower, um, Sustainable, uh, Aquaculture, um, just countless numbers. And Red Sea's got one. Seachem's got one. And they're not all the same. They're just not all the, the these essential amino acids that are listed in this paper. And so in an ideal world, yes, you could give your corals the entire freaking menu of food that it needs to have all of these um, amino acids always available because it's just always consuming them from the environment. But in the same way that bodybuilders don't eat all the foods that are going to give them those that that boost the you know the extra juice they take supplements not all these supplements are the same but they can all eat enough food for their you know uh, supernatural growth that they're trying to achieve with their muscle mass um, by simply eating and that's why they have to take supplements so this is very similar to our corals you know of course they're eating stuff from the tank they're consuming random you know pre-digested stuff from fish poop um, their their bacteria and their zooxanthellae are helping with some of that but if you just give it to them <laughs> You just put it in the water. Um, that fills definitely one of those kind of final building blocks. This is the icing on our cake, right? We built our cake up with good water conditions in terms of salinity, pH, temperature, and uh, all the minerals, calcium, alkali, magnesium, the nutrients that they need to fuel the zooxanthellae. Then you've already, you know, given whatever trace elements they need, either through direct dosing or water changes. And then finally, that last piece of the puzzle. And what I love about amino acids is you don't have to do it. Yeah. Your coral is not going to suffer if you don't do it. it but in a lot of cases, it, especially this is, again, this is applies more to a coral farmer or intensive aquaculture or fully loaded reef tank. So applying a source of amino acids is going to just fill in that gap that it just cannot keep up with or that you cannot keep up with by feeding live phytoplankton and, and live rotifers and live copepods and everything else. Yeah, and that's a big ask. And so amino acid is one of those few things that I find is just a tiny little shortcut to the icing on your cake. And the best part about it is it doesn't really matter how much you add. It doesn't really seem to fuel stuff depending, depending on the brand, you know, Acropower is my jam, um, that really fits the bill, you know, it's designed by Julian Sprong and I'm sure he studied this, this paper and probably several others in depth to come up with which amino acids are most important and in one concentrations. I want to say, I saw an Boom, interview. Drop. That's, that's my amino acid <laughs> vocal thesis. <laughs> and I, I I mean, not to plug Acropower, uh, but I want to say I heard him in an interview say that he tried different amino acids from these scientific papers and and tried to look for one that one had... One by one. And then there was one where he was like, okay, this one's making a difference, you know? Um, but I, I could be wrong. I, I usually listen to those type of discussions in YouTubes uh, really late at night when I'm half awake. So, um, yeah, and I think... 
the reason I was always a bit skeptical about coral feeding, but I, you know, I've since changed my tune a little bit now that I'm gone kind of back in retro and I'm trying to keep trackies and, um, uh, micromusas and all that fun stuff is that, um, coral stomachs and it's not a stomach, but you know, it's not complicated, right? It's not like a cow that has seven stomachs and somehow mm, can break down cellulose, right? Yeah. So, um, a lot of studies about coral feeding is it's uh, some of it's attributed to particle size, but like it's not like mm -mm, I, I don't. This coral does not eat this species of copepod. It only eats this species of copepod, right? Like they're they're very non-selective. Um, so I always attribute a lot of value to fish poop and just crap in the water as well. Pre-digested food yeah. with a nice bacterial coating just built right in. Yeah, there I is something to be said about fish poop for sure. It's you know, it's not like you can. It's not like you can give a cow a, a liquid smoothie and it's probably going to survive as good as a cow that eats grass, right? That's a much more complicated digestive nutritional pathway. But I don't think corals are like that so much. I think they're more opportunistic. Um, but that said, you know, with all that said, I mean. I do think coral feeding probably provides a lot of these things, but it is interesting that just adding the amino acids straight up into the water column makes it usable for these corals and it mm -hmm. makes a difference. So um, there's just something to be said for that. I mean, um, if you're feeding your corals heavily, they may be getting some of these complexes and other pathways, but um, that's, I, I said it in a previous podcast that I have not, I said, I've not found any magic bottle at the pet shop that changed my reekeeping where I'm like, I still dose magic juice to this day because in, you know, 20 years mm -hmm. ago, I started adding this to my reef tank and everything changed. And when I said that in one of our previous podcasts, I paused and I said, there's one exception to that rule and that's amino acids. And I mean that sincerely. So. Yeah. Um, no, there's a big difference. I can kind of tell when someone's using Acropower particularly. Um, you know, I'm going to kind of shout out just a few others that have worked really well for me, and that's uh, Brightwell Aminos. Um, Reef Energy AB Plus seems to have a little bit more of a carbohydrate component, like more of a, like a foodie food. And then the fuel, yeah. the Seachem Fuel, um, that one is, um, is less amino acid-like and more like a liquid food-like. But I've used AB Plus. I've used fuel and I've used Acropower together and not the, not, you know, apart. And I thought for sure if I dosed a bunch of AB plus that would suffice, you know, whatever I was seeing with Acropower. I remember when early days of the studio, I dosed, I was just using kind of the AB plus and then some um, Brightwell aminos. And then I got resupplied on Acropower and started dosing that again. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> but once again... This is icing on the cake. Yeah. Right? Everything else has to kind of line I'm, up. Your core I'm already bad to about dosing healthy. it because if you don't dose it, it's not the end of the world. And if you do consistently dose it, mm -hmm. it is icing, right? So the problem with that is since it's not mission critical, I always uh, get lackadaisical about it. So. You know, I have some systems where I dose it, right? A lot of channel, a lot of dosers are either two or four channels. Right. So I'm dosing, you know, Brightwell calcium, magnesium, and buffer. And there's always that fourth channel, right? What am I going to dose in the fourth channel? And it's always Acropower. But I have a couple systems that uh, I only dose buffer. So they might have a single channel doser or no dosing at all. And I'll just, I'll put a glug in there whenever I remember. 
<laughs> just be like, oh, it's been a while. Here you go. Here's like 30 mils for 100 gallons. And uh, here you go. <laughs> the, the only... That's my favorite part of... Sorry. I, are, do you notice a difference in dosing Acropower in regards to LPS and softies though? It's It's like everything else with the softies and LPS, it takes longer. Yeah. Right. So on a longer period of time, if you're, if you were like a coral farmer that was really, um, putting, let's just say like Lords or Favia's, um, intensive culture, you'll see more of a difference. But if you're just sitting there looking at Cinerinas that already look good, what is it going to grow? You know, is it going to grow yeah. a, an extra quarter inch in diameter a year versus yeah. one eighth of an inch in diameter? It's just kind of hard to tell. I do believe that there's going to be a lot of variability across these corals. But the smaller the polyp and the stonerier they are, the more they seem to benefit through supplying um, a direct source of amino acids. And these are just the brands I'm very familiar with. I know that other reefers have had great success with Aquaforest, with um, the, the black label stuff from Australia, and a number of other brands. There's only 20 amino acids, right? It's kind of hard to, to screw that up. Um, but just because it says amino acids on it, like, you know, one brand that had almost, I didn't see the same effect. Um, as amino acid, as, as, uh, Acropower and some of these others was Zeovit. You would think that they would have that stuff on lock, but I just, I always saw a lot more, um, just, um, stimulation and vitality or response from my corals when I added Poles Coral Vitalizer than the Zeovit amino acid. It was, it was kind of strange, but, um, yeah, I think we've, uh, I think we've, uh, set down the path for achieving coral coloration yeah. through coral health uh, quite well. This is a, a, a challenging topic. So that's why we took last week off to just really focus on this and do our research and read our books and trawl the literature to just kind of make sure we had um, our ideas uh, kind of well organized. Um, but I'll just go back to that first thing. You know, there is no single additive um, that is just going to make your corals colorful. Yeah. Right. If you achieve coral color, you, you've made it. You know, you've made it. Your corals are healthy. They're growing. And now that's just the, kind of like the icing on the cake. And, uh, you know, the most important thing, honestly, is just stop looking at corals on Instagram. Because apart from a few European companies, I'm going to give props to Fauna Marin and especially White Corals and especially Leonardo's Reef. Those guys really go out of their way to represent their corals under daylight spectrum. And they literally have a thing on the image if they use an orange filter that's going to kind of skew those colors. And they are being the, the most honest about um, presenting their corals that they have for sale. And it's just not that way at all in America. I can't really speak to Asia so much. But if someone's slapping an orange filter to take a picture of the coral, boom, there goes, you know, whatever color balance you thought. And so do not compare your corals to anything you basically see online. Because even us aquarists, we always want them to look the best. 
But I, you know, I really try to use that yellow filter, the light yellow filter, just to kind of balance out the blue a little bit to make it look uh, as accurate as possible to my eyes. Okay, yeah, sure, once in a while I've got a really blued out tank, I'll throw the orange filter and just let the colors rip. But if you think that that's the way corals look, you're, ne- you're going to be disappointed. Yeah. It's always going to be let down if you're, if you're trying to, if you're chasing those rainbows. I, you know, I've been sidetracked by so many things in the last couple of weeks that I haven't had a desire to really open up Instagram um, or check like Facebook groups affiliated with the hobby. And it's funny when you take some time away and then you jump back in. It's it's a bit of a culture shock, right? I, I don't want to call it desensitized, right? Yeah, you're like, oh God, this is just. This is awful. <laughs> it's 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 a I mean, bunch it's, of um, it's a bunch of crap trying to push me to buy more crap, and mm-hmm. and I didn't feel the need to buy anything, and I was content <laughs> for mm-hmm. for a few weeks. I just didn't feel like I had to keep up or buy anything. It, it was nice, right. and and um, I'm sure I'll get sucked back into it somehow, being bored <laughs> in a doctor's office or something, scrolling right. But um, it was refreshing. I don't know. It's uh, and yet co- achieving coral coloration through coral health is a very complicated topic. I'm glad we took the better part of two hours to say most of what we had about it. And, you know, if you're watching this on YouTube, um, let us know in the comments one, mm. yeah, what you thought of the what we you know, put forward. If there's anything that you have noticed really helped to spike or diminish your coral coloration. Share those tips too. We get a little hi from the studio cat, Carbon. Hey, Carbon. She just she just loves reef therapy time. I think she's it's all about that voice. Um, but yeah, also if you're listening to this on uh, via podcast, make sure to rate us on your favorite podcatcher and share this with someone. You know, the the podcast is still very new, but it's uh, it's definitely uh, developed a very strong fan base as we uh, experienced firsthand when we were in Atlanta and got to meet so many of you guys. Uh, we hope to make it out to some shows here in the near future and uh, have some live sessions of just personal reef therapy, just talking about our reef tanks uh, pretty soon. So, Mark, I don't know anyone else who could join me in this uh, very intense, convoluted discussion on coral health to achieve coral coloration, but I think we uh, managed a good 95% of what we were trying to say, and uh, I think this is a great session. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I learned something. You you forced me to go learn more, which was good. I mean, you didn't force me, but uh, I I wanted to see, you know, what what was out there, and not in the hobby, not on a on a forum, right? Like, what what are what are um, right? Yeah, what is the science saying? Because it's always been just a fascinating subject, you know. And so, um, in a way, it was just fun to have that homework assignment and to have a little bit of reading to do. Um, and, and to be to be sure. We know less about coral coloration than there is to know. Yeah. I'm not just talking about you and me. I'm just taking overall, like all these things that affect chroma proteins versus fluorescent proteins and these esoteric trace elements and amino acids and where all that stuff intersects. We know less than there is to yet to be discovered, right? So a lot of this stuff is on the frontiers, on the fringes, and it's even hard for like a PhD thesis to try to tease some of this apart. But man, that would be my uh, uh, kind of dream for some young listeners right now who want to get into science to go 
make this their, you know, career. Go figure out what's happening with these, with these coral colors because you never know how much that might spill over into kind of everyday life and everyday industry. And heck, you might discover a brand new color that you can name after your wife or something. <laughs> that or this seems like an area where the hobby could actually provide insight and, and grow the knowledge base of the scientific community because here we are all chasing color, tweaking our lights, tinkering with trace elements. You know, I bet, you know, these guys that are um, synthesizing or are, are, are trying to get E. coli bacteria to synthesize chromatoproteins. It's like, wait, you did what? Okay. Yeah. You know, how, how did you do that? Yeah. yeah. You know, no, I think we, I think the reef aquarium hobby can come up with a lot of the questions and then the scientific community can help come up with a lot of the answers. Right. Or, or we could come up with the observations and then they could start to figure out the explanation behind the observation. Right. So anyway, it was a good time, man. But I guess, uh, you know, one thing, one thing I want to leave uh, listeners, uh, with is that your reef tank is beautiful enough. It's already beautiful and uh, just, you know, start accepting it. And if you, you cover your bases, don't worry about the icing until later. That can always come later. And uh, yeah, cover your bases. Your corals will be healthy and happy and thriving and uh, you'll enjoy your reef a lot more. Yeah, agreed. Healthy okay, corals next are the week, best looking we'll talk corals. To you guys. Yeah, that's where it's at. Yep. All right, guys. We'll talk to you soon.